Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 13, where James asks another one of his rhetorical questions. Who is wise and understanding among you? Don't answer. Get yourself in trouble. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Of course, James is going to argue that your conduct, your behavior should follow your belief. That's what his whole book is about. Now, he says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Something must have been going on uh, in the churches that James was writing to. He says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are. But now he talks about the wisdom that's from above, verse 17. He said, first it's pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, as a Bible teacher, I am very excited about these latter chapters in James because there is tremendous potential for all of us to grow, not only personally, but really as a church. Uh, there is great stuff in these final chapters. Now, one of my titles here, I'm a pastor, but one of my titles here is I am the CRO of Calvary Chapel. I'm not a CEO, I'm not a CFO, I'm not a COO. I am a CRO, the Chief Reminding Officer. And I love it, I really do. And every Sunday I get to come here and remind you of certain things. Remind you that God loves you, has a plan for your life. That his grace is sufficient for you. That if you confess your sins, that you can get right with God. That sin's going to lead you down a bad path. Uh, that God is all that you need and all you can desire. And he's never going to leave you or forsake you. I love reminding you of these things. You know why? I need to be reminded of them. Because I live in the same world you do. And I get beat down all week. And I hear competing voices. And just to come and hear what is true. That God loves us and we're made in his image. And we're the apple of his eye is so important. Now, if you listen to me long enough, and some of you have been here a long, long time, I'm like the poor, I'll always be with you, right? If you listen to me long enough, the one thing I will always remind you of is that you have a gift to bring to the table, to the body of Christ, and that God wants you to grow. I mean, that's my resounding message. God wants you to grow. He not only wants you to grow, he wants you to grow every single year. I don't care how old you are physically, how many years you've walked with Christ, God wants you to grow. One of the great metaphors in all the Bible is seed. Seed in the ground grows. Children grow. You know, my children are adult children now. My youngest is 20, but if I look at any one of them and I don't see growth, I'm going to sit down and say, now where are you going? What are you doing? What's going on in your life? God wants you to grow. Caleb and Joshua were 80 years old, and they were looking for new hills to climb and new horizons. God wants us to grow in so many areas. He wants us to grow in the knowledge of who he is, the fellowship of his suffering, the power of his resurrection. He wants us to grow in grace and generosity, our love for the poor. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Here's what's cool about following Jesus. There is no ceiling. It's not like, oh, I've known God for 10 years or I'm 50 years old, I timed out. Let me go do something else, okay? You don't time out with God. It says through the ages to come, like, like in a million years from now, if we run into each other, you'll still be learning of his grace, still be love, learning of his glory. It's a beautiful thing. And so there's riches and treasure in Christ. And what James is saying here is that real faith grows. 
We're growing every single year. One of the things I like to do is sit down in the week between Christmas and New Year's and kind of journal a little about how my year went and some of the goals I have for the next year. And uh, I look back and I think, God, I can't believe all that you've done and I can't believe how much left there still is to do. Now, if we're gonna grow and if we're gonna walk with God, one of the things we have to understand is there are certain tools in our tool belt we never had before, and one of them is wisdom. James, I just read it to you, calls it wisdom from above because there is another kind of wisdom, and that is natural wisdom. Remember back in chapter one, I mean, it's probably a page away. There's only 100 verses. Uh, Chapter one, chapter five, James says, do any of you lack wisdom? That should be like a collective yes, right? Anybody kind of have to make a decision about anything? Future spouse, where you're going to go to college, how to take care of elderly people, how to spend money. I mean, we all lack wisdom, right? We all come to these crossroads where we're not sure where we should go, and we certainly want God's input. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God. And he will give liberally, without reproach, to all those who come to him. And here's the, here's the clue. What comes from God? What comes from the Holy Spirit? What comes from above is the, is the wisdom we want to walk in. Now, I, I share with you, there's two types of wisdom, and James kind of nails it here in verse 15. He said there is a earthly wisdom. It's earthly, it's sensual. He says it's demonic. Now, I don't think it's demonic in the sense of the occult, right? Paul said the serpent was more crafty than all the animals that were in the garden, and he deceived Eve with what? One lie. The lie was you can use your own wisdom. In other words, you can live a life sans God. You don't need God's input. And look what it's done to the world. Look what it's done to human beings. Look at cable TV. We don't even know what male and female is anymore, let alone marriage or any of these things. We're so confused. That's the natural wisdom of man, which is always horizontal. The Egyptians had the Nile, and the Nile supplied all their needs, and they only had to look at life on this level. The Hebrews, however, had to look into the heavens. They had to look for the early and the latter rains that God would provide, because they had to depend and trust on him. And that's what the Christian life's all about. There is the horizontal, but we so need the vertical. We need this wisdom that James says comes from above. Verse 17, he says it's pure, it's peaceable, it's of the new man, the new nature. When you got born again, God gave you spiritual ears and spiritual eyes. That's why Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It's willing to yield. It bears the fruits of righteousness. Now, the people that James was writing to, the 12 tribes scattered abroad, they got this. Because right smack in the middle of their Bible, which they didn't call the Old Testament, it was the Tanakh, right smack in the middle of the Hebrew Bible were four wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, uh, I guess you could add Job, maybe that's a fifth, uh, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Now, these books weren't exactly theology. Let's take Proverbs, for example. Proverbs is generally the way life should go. So it talks about the diligent versus the slothful man and and the man who has wise dealings. And it gives a whole subset of things that the wise do. And what Proverbs is saying is that if you live life like this, you will have general success. But Proverbs begins in chapter 1, verse 7 by saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom instruction. 
In other words, if you're really going to know wisdom, God has to be plugged into the equation. Proverbs 4, 7 says, acquire wisdom, and in all you're acquiring, get understanding. Why? It's more precious than rubies, gold, and silver. Well, look, nobody acquires more than Americans, right? That's all we do. I shared with you last week, I went to Costco, and these carts are like, people, it looks like the Grinch when he was, you know, had all the presents. It's all we're doing is acquiring. How's it working out for you? <laughs> you know, we need the wisdom of God. The Jews prized wisdom above everything else. Now, other cultures prized wisdom. The Greeks had Sophia, but it was more philosophical to them. It was more debate to them, whereas the Jews looked at wisdom as a practical tool. 45 times in the book of Proverbs, the writer uses the word hokmah. It's a Hebrew word that means skill. Uh, it's also used for the skill of a craftsman cutting wood or marble or whatever. Uh, so wisdom was the ability to handle life with skill. It was to be able to do the right thing at the right time, to take all the knowledge and learning and then apply it to life. That was a wise man. And that's the way the Hebrews looked at it. Uh, really, the, the person we need to look at in this area is Solomon. He becomes the wisest man who has ever lived. Now, he's succeeding his father, David, who's a living legend, right? David killed Goliath. That makes you a living legend right out of the gate. But he was a sweet psalmist of Israel. And even today, when you go to Israel, everything's named after David, even though David probably never lived in the era when something was built. It's just all named after David. And so Solomon's following his dad to the throne. And very difficult to follow a great leader. And he's in his early 20s. And the Lord appears to him in a dream, and he says, Solomon, ask, and I shall give it to you. And Solomon says, Lord, I'm not asking for great riches or death of my enemies or length of days. This is what everybody else would ask for. But I pray that you would grant me wisdom that I might lead your people, Israel. Can you imagine if a president of the United States or a senator took office, put his hand on the Bible and said that? I don't want all the perks of office. I just want to make people thrive. Can you imagine what our world would look like? Church leaders, business leaders. Can you imagine if leadership was held to that standard? The Bible says the saying pleased the Lord. I guess it did. And God said, you know what, Solomon? I'm going to enlarge your heart like the sand on the seashore. Behold, I'm, I'm going to heed according to your words. I'm going to give you a, a wise and understanding heart so that you will be wiser than anyone before you and anyone after you. And God said, not only that, I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you riches. I'm going to give you length of days and death of your enemies. And Solomon, it tells us, becomes the wisest man that ever lives. Now, when you read about Solomon, it's remarkable. It says God gave him wisdom and understanding and largeness of heart as the sand on the seashore. And he becomes the wisest man that ever lived. Uh, and, and the Bible actually names all these wise men. And it said he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He writes three books of the Bible. He's a literary genius. He's Bono and John Grisham in one body, right? He writes songs. He writes literature. It's unfair, right? He goes on to say he wrote of horticulture, the trees of Lebanon. He was a zoologist. He studied animals and creeping things and birds and fish. And men of all nations from all the kings of the earth came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. It's unbelievable. 
You ever get a chance, go back and read 1 Kings 4. It said this was the provision for his household. This is just his household. This isn't the temple which he would later build. 185 bushels of flour, 375 bushels of fine meal, 10 grade-fed cattle, 20 range cattle, 100 sheep. No vegans in Israel at this time. Um, and, and if you didn't like that kind of meat, miscellaneous deer, uh, uh, choice fowl. I mean, this guy had game meat. All Look, Cisco wasn't backing up the truck in that day. There's no refrigeration. This is unbelievable. This makes Mar-a-Lago look like Howard Johnson's, right? The queen of Sheba comes, this is very important, I'll tie it to James, and she said, up until this time, I have heard of your wisdom. She said, but now I've seen it. And James is arguing for the same thing. Look, you just can't say you're wise. You just can't say you have head knowledge. James says there's something in our conduct. There's, there's a skill in living life. You know, how many times have you looked at someone or been to their home and they don't have great things, but, but you just see something in that person you want to be because they walk with God and they have a skill and they walk in wisdom. And Solomon was this man, and the tragedy of Solomon is he builds the temple and he dedicates it to God and he has this wonderful prayer. And then something devastating happens. He transgresses all this wisdom. And he goes on a quest to find meaning in life and what he calls under the sun, natural wisdom. And he looks at career and he looks at sexual pleasure and money and all the things that God has given to men and he says it's all vanity, it's all chasing after the wind. He reaches like the lowest point in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, I studied the wise and I studied the fool and they both end up in the same place. And we know that's not true. And God lets Solomon write this book so we can see what life looks like under the sun with natural wisdom just on the horizontal. And guys, I gotta tell you, it's empty. Anybody who tells you it's not is lying to you. That's why many of us are here because we were sick and tired of being sick and tired. If pleasure was the answer, America would be the answer to everyone's prayers. But it's not. And Solomon comes to one brief and shining moment in chapter three of Ecclesiastes, and he looks at life under heaven with God in the equation, and he says, oh my gosh, I get it. God has made everything beautiful in its time, and there's a purpose for everything under heaven, and there's a season for this and a season for that. And get this, he said, God has even put eternity within our hearts. That's why things of this world will never satisfy. They're wonderful gifts, but they're never gonna bring ultimate satisfaction. And he ends the book of Ecclesiastes by saying, here's the sum of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is man's all. Solomon said, I learned the hard way. You don't need to go the way I've gone. And so the Jews that James was writing to who were now Christians understood this idea and this concept of wisdom in its totality. And James begins to write to them, and there must have been something going on among these churches, and he says, look, there has to be, you know, a going back to natural wisdom, because I'm looking at what's going on in your fellowships, and something's amiss. Now, what it was was natural wisdom. We'll spend very little time here, because I want to get to the positive. But look at verses 14 to 16. He talks about self-seeking. He talks about you know, envy and, and, and natural wisdom, it's earthly, it's, it's of the flesh, etc., etc. Uh, the one word I think that could jump out of all this, and some of the commentators write about it, is ambition. Uh, if there's any way of the world, or if there's any natural part of this world, it's ambition. 
The idea we want to be driven, we want to succeed, we want to acquire. That's what self-seeking, that, that's what that's all about. That's the way the world works. Now, I have yet to discover the fine line between ambition and passion in someone. Now, I understand ambition works in the world. In the church, it's devastating, and I've seen it. Um, and so I've been trying to look at this for a long, long time. Uh, Solomon's dad, I already mentioned David, almost got to this point. Uh, God had revealed to him he wasn't going to build a temple even though he wanted to. God said, your hands are too bloody, David, and I'm going to leave it for another man, and that would be his son, Solomon. But one day, David's sitting around his house, and he's looking at this beautiful palace, and he says, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm dwelling in this house, and God's in a tent in the tabernacle. And he runs into Nathan, who's a prophet, his trusted advisor, and says, Nathan, we got to build the temple for God. And Nathan has a really weak moment. He says, David, if that's what God's put in your heart, then let's go do it. Now, Nathan gets a little bit of gumption a couple days later and comes back and says, David, I think it's a bad idea. And David agrees with him, and thank God he never tried that. It would have been a disaster. Why am I bringing that up? Sometimes ambition leads us to do things we say that, quote, unquote, God called me to do. Do you ever kind of jump out at that? And then when it fails, you blame God, right? Now, the reason I bring it up is because we're all great rationalizers. The reason I know is I am, right? Yeah, uh, I think I'm going to take that job, pays more money. Uh, I know it's an hour more commute. I know I'll see my kids less and, and yada, yada, yada. But you know what? We could buy a bigger house and we'll have Bible studies all the time. Yeah, I know living together is not right, but we'll just do it for a season. We'll save some money. You know, I've heard all the rationalization you, you could ever want to hear. And a lot of it's just pure ambition. So what do we do when we come to crossroads? What do we do when we need wisdom? What do we do when we have to discern in difficult decisions? And I've given this to you before, and, and someone should write it down because it served me well. You do four things. Number one, what does the Bible say? This is why our noses needed to be in the Bible 15 minutes to a half hour a day, somehow, some way. What's the Bible say? So when Tim Tebow's mom was pregnant and not married, she could go to the Bible, and the Bible says life is precious, and she had the baby. That's easy. It's in the Bible. What, what about when the Bible's not real clear on your situation? Like, do I go to this college or that college? Second thing you do is you talk to trusted advisors. This is the beauty of living in community or going to Bible study or being on a serving team, that you have friends where you could say, guys, this is what I'm thinking. Uh, what's your insight on this? Now, this isn't like Joe who you meet for coffee once a month. This is somebody who really knows you and your proclivities, that could speak life to you and, like Nathan, could kind of call you on the carpet. Third thing is, what does past pain and experience teach you? You know, we've all made decisions we regret, and, and we all know how things have worked out. Well, what does the past teach us? Past is prologue to the future. And then finally, what's the Holy Spirit saying? At the end of the day, in your gut, what is the Spirit saying to you? I've mentioned Gordon McDonald probably more times than you want to hear because I read his books early in my Christian walk and they've always served me well. One of the things Gordon McDonald said is we should all be skeptical of our own motives. Why? The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Sometimes we don't even know our own heart. We don't even know why we're trying to do things. 
Gordon McDonald said, you need to have a healthy skepticism of your own motives. Some of you think too higher of yourselves than you ought. Some of you think too low of yourselves. We need an honest appraisal of ourselves. One of the questions you can ask yourself is, have I fully surrendered this desire to the Lord? Some people try and make Christianity a self-help religion. It's not. In fact, it's the opposite. Romans 12 says that we have climbed on a worship altar. We are living sacrifices. In other words, we are those who have died to self that we might live Christ in us. So it's not about us, it's about what God wants us to do. Have I really put this on a worship altar? Two, is this truly God's plan or just my own ambition? Three, am I waiting for the Lord to open a door or am I ready to kind of force the door down? Four, am I resorting to human methods in an attempt to accomplish God's plan? And finally, am I attempting this because God has called me to do it this is very important, or I'm driven to succeed. I gotta tell you, there's been a lot of things I have done that I have had to put through this checklist. Some have worked, some have not worked. This is a really good checklist. Uh, the last one is so important. You know, am I called to it or am I driven to succeed? Uh, kind of beat you guys up enough, but uh, let's talk about pastors. Pastor Oscar Maru, who travels the country and speaks, said, Bob, I'm seeing an alarming thing lately. Every church I go to has this large campus, this large sanctuary, and a dwindling amount of people. And you could chalk that up to demographics or the leader moved on and, and probably a host of things. But I'll bet you in some of that there was a lot of ambition and ego in building buildings, right? David wanted to build one. Gordon McDonald goes on to say that the difference between ambition and passion is that the driven man is ambitious, the called man is obedient. The called man is obedient. And sometimes what God calls you to do, not everybody's gonna understand, but you have to walk in obedience. So this is why we need the wisdom that's from above. When we get to chapter four on New Year's Eve, I'm gonna talk to you about a set of verses where James says, and he's quoting a hypothetical, hey, let's go to a certain city, we'll move there, and we'll do such and such. And James says, you know, rather than doing all that, you should say, if the Lord wills, we'll do such and such. And the thing I love about that chapter, it's saying, you know, there's nothing wrong with goals, but goals aren't God. Doesn't mean you shouldn't set goals or plan or have some accomplishment at the end of the road. But what it's saying is, is God behind this? See? Uh, just as another little checklist, this is what Gordon McDonald said about driven people. He said, a driven person is most often, most often, gratified only by accomplishment. Now, accomplishment is wonderful, but that's only what you're gratified by. You may be driven. A driven person is preoccupied. In other words, most of his life is with the symbols of accomplishment. Cars, titles, things of that nature. Things that wow people. Uh, he said, driven people tend to have a limited regard for integrity, at least in the area where they're trying to achieve. They'll take any amount of shortcuts to reach a goal. Driven people often possess limited or underdeveloped people skills. Driven people tend to be highly competitive. 
Driven people often possess a volcanic force of anger, and driven people are usually abnormally busy. Now, it's a fine line in all this. I told you, I haven't figured it out. Paul was busier than anybody I've ever read about, but he wasn't driven. In fact, if you look at him in Acts, I think it's 27, he's on that ship and everybody's saying we're gonna die. Paul's the most relaxed guy there. Because to him, to live was Christ, to die was gain. Was he, was he, you know, to use the word driven? Probably, but not in a competitive sense. Certainly not for titles and ambition. So we all gotta figure this out, right? There's the old man, the new man, and the old man wants to get back in. We gotta work this out, right? Like some of our drivenness is certainly for approval. Maybe our parents instilled that in us. Maybe we're trying to wow others. Maybe recognition is how we've always got ahead in life. And James is saying, look, let's take a time out here. Wisdom from above in a real and genuine faith changes things. There's a new course, new direction. Now the good stuff, verse 17. When you're making a decision, when you're trying to figure out what to do in life, number one, the peace that comes from above on the vertical between you and God is pure. It's pure. Now we don't have a lot of purity in our world, right? Everything has a mixture. Everything's a little bit contaminated, right? Like the coffee out at the table today has parts per billion contamination in it, right? Um, one of the things I fought for in the cafe, by the way, I wanted one of those real orange juice makers. Put the oranges in, they kind of go around, you get real orange juice. I lost, because we don't have it. Uh, people said it would have flies, it wouldn't work. Uh, I like it for two reasons. I like to watch the oranges go around and get crushed. Do you ever have pure orange juice? Oh my gosh, when you drink it, it's like, the other stuff is 50% sugar. When something is pure, like sexual purity, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. When God gives you an answer, there's no mixture. Even trusted advisors you gotta be careful of, because they have agendas. But when God answers, there's a certain purity. Uh, when I read Diedrich Bonhoeffer's biography by Metaxas, um, and just watched him make that decision about, rather than staying in New York where he would be safe, but going back to Nazi Germany where he would probably lose his life, to see the purity of that decision really spoke volumes to me. Second, it's peaceable. If you're new to the faith, you'll hear Christians say things like, well, I have a peace about that, or I don't have a peace about that. Remember my checklist, what's the Bible say? Trusted advisors, past pain and experience. The last one is, do you have a peace in your spirit? There's another scripture that says that God will give you the peace that passes understanding. Now, God gave us a brain, we need to use it, but sometimes God will answer in a way that doesn't even make sense to your natural mind, but you know it's God. You can't explain it, no one's gonna understand it, but you know it's God. Anyone know who Chip Gaines is? Yeah, you all watch Fixer Upper, right? So I don't watch it, uh, but I found out about Chip and Joanna Gaines watching the news, and found out that they had this wonderful show that was highly successful, and they were actually in the news because somebody found out, <laughs> wait to hear this, that the church they attended taught the biblical definition of marriage. <laughs> to which I thought, well, what are you expecting them to teach? Isn't that what we do, we teach the Bible? Couldn't believe that was news. Well, anyway, I kind of got into their story. I kind of read his little biography in Barnes & Noble, 
And turns out he came to faith at a Billy Graham crusade and then actually stayed with one of Billy Graham's kids and really saw how the Grahams lived. And it, and it kind of like James, really moved him. He marries Joanna. They have a couple kids. They have a, a store called Magnolia Market, home furniture store, rather successful. God tells them to really get out of that business so they can give more attention to raising their kids. His wife Joanna said, the day we closed that store was like a death. And I could relate to that. I remember after working for the Boeing company for 12 and a half years and then coming here full time, man, what they put you through is like a death. You go into this room, uh, they take your benefits away, your badge away, like everything away, and like strip naked, you're gonna walk out into the world. She said, but it wasn't a sadness. It was though something had died and something was coming. This is the way God works. She said, God taught me to study his word and believe it. She said when she made this decision, she really had to believe God's word because she was reading stuff and God was telling her stuff that hadn't been fulfilled yet in her life. She said, I had to cultivate a faith that I would have to believe before I saw. So cool. I had to trust God about his promises, although my circumstances spoke otherwise. And, you know, the short story is God eventually gave them this idea of a reality show, and it kind of fell in their lap. And it's just so cool to read about, you know, these wonderful backstories. But the point is, she had a peace about a decision where everybody thought they were out of their mind. Why in the world would you close this business? And the reason is because God said there's something else for us. It's going to be a growth spurt. James goes on to say, when God gives you an answer, can't stress this, it's gentle. The Holy Spirit's a gentleman. Uh, in other words, he's not a car salesman or a timeshare salesman. Nothing against those people, but they want you to buy in the now. Why? Because they don't want you to go through my checklist. They don't want you to talk to trusted advisors, go through past pain experience, you never buy a car, right? Anybody who wants you to do something now, I tell you to walk away. But there's a whole science behind that. The Holy Spirit is gentle. It comes slowly over time. That's how you know it's from God. It's willing to yield. Uh, in a corporate sense here, which I think James is talking about, when like-minded Christians get in a room, if we're really hearing for God, we're not kind of fighting one another for our own agenda. There's a willingness. What do you think? What do you think? There's a consensus that if God's among us, we're all going to agree. And I, I got to say, in our leadership, there are very few things we've ever disagreed on. But most of us just come to the agreement, yeah, we think God's in this or he's not in this. Full of mercy. When wisdom comes from God, it's taking into account everybody else's uh, situation and wants to honor that. Uh, it yields fruit. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit. You know, going back to Solomon, he's an interesting study when you get to the New Testament. You know, Solomon's one of my heroes because I, I just love guys like Solomon. He's just like a rock star. But when you get to the New Testament, something strange happens. This man of the Old Testament who built the temple and had all these accomplishments rarely gets talked about. And when he does, it's almost like tongue in cheek. For instance, Jesus said, um, don't be anxious in life. God feeds the sparrows. He's going to feed you. 
And then look at Solomon. Look at the lilies of the field. Uh, Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like these. It's kind of like a weird backhanded compliment, don't you think? And then the temple, right? Solomon builds the temple. And Jesus said, the temple... The disciples said, Lord, you know, they're on the Mount of Olives. Look at the temple, the sun, it's, you know, it's shining on the gold. Jesus said, I'll destroy this and build it in three days. We don't find him in Hebrews 11. And the reason is, Jesus was the greater than Solomon. He was Proverbs 8. He was wisdom incarnate. And unlike Solomon, he didn't come to build buildings. He came to build the hearts of men and the minds of men. And it was the fruit of the Spirit and a changed heart. And that's what James is getting at. This is Jesus' half-brother, and he's saying, my brother never wrote a book. He never wrote 3,000 Proverbs and 1,000 Psalms. He was the Word, and it's dwelling in our hearts. He never built a building. He never led an army. He never did any of these things. Don't get caught up in all that, James is saying. He is the life-changing Word of God, and if that seed goes in your heart and that wisdom comes from above, you can know who God is. And you can walk in wisdom. The last verse says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And the last thing we have to touch on is, you know, there, there's, there's a burr in James' saddle. Now, he's not just writing this to write it. He starts the chapter by saying, look, don't many of you become teachers. You're going to get a stricter judgment. Something was wrong in... In, in the difference between what was being taught and how the leaders were living, in James' opinion, that was wrong. And so he goes through this list about the tongue and so forth and so on. And then there was a, a split on how people were acting. Who among you is wisdom? You know, you're saying you're wise in the way they were living. Because in chapter 4, he's going to say, where do wars come from you? Where do, you know, I'll throw my own phrase in there. Where do church splits and, and all... James is saying, where's all this confusion from? Certainly not from God. Wasn't in the upper room. And he says it's because you lust and you fight and you're, you're living in the horizontal. And so I, I think the great edification this morning is what we've been talking about all through the book of James. We have something greater. The wisdom of God. The wisdom of the ages. It's available to us. And we're all going to face these times. We're all going to face these times like Solomon where, you know, where, the, where we want to cut the baby in half, if you know that story. Where there seems like no answer, no answer. And yet if you put yourself in a place, God will answer. I've watched it in my life, the life of my kids, my staff, people I love and know. We're all going to walk this road. And as the C-R-O... I want to remind you, you're not alone. There is a God who will answer. And the answer will be pure and peaceable. And you will grow and you will walk and fulfill your calling and what you were put on this earth to do. If you walk in natural wisdom, you'll get hit upside the head and you can start all over again. But Solomon said, look, School hard knocks ain't the way to go. The Jews were smart in this one thing. Learn by someone else's example. You don't have to learn by doing it yourself. 
You can learn by example, and that's wisdom. 